Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, in 1989, 20th Century Fox released a dark comedy called The War with the Roses. It was pushed out in movie theaters during the Christmas season. The slogan that was used to market the movie went like this. Once in a lifetime comes a motion picture that makes you feel like falling in love all over again. This is not that movie. Based on the 1981 novel bearing the same name, the movie begins by following the seemingly perfect marriage of Barbara and Oliver Rose. They were played by Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. However, in the 17th year of their blissful matrimony, their relationship quickly unravels, leading both to want a divorce. The difficulty is neither... Barbara or Oliver want to give up their luxurious home. And when they are unable to negotiate a fair settlement with their lawyers, a pathetic, comedic, and sometimes cringeworthy war over the house ensues, where each spouse is trying to make the other so uncomfortable that they finally will hopefully throw in the towel, give up, and say, you win, you can have the house. But neither does that. For example, after he embarrasses her in front of her clients, she retaliates by running over his antique car with her truck. (laughs) And so on and so on. With each perceived offense, the other spouse responds with an over-the-top retaliation, further escalating their feud. Sadly, the movie ends with their lavish house destroyed and the couple falling to their death as they hang on to a chandelier together. Although every marriage struggles from time to time, the creator of marriage designed it to be so much better than the roses experienced. And after more than two decades of pastoral ministry, I can tell you the majority of couples that I have counseled needed counseling because they were struggling to understand their roles. They were struggling to understand the roles that God had designated for them to play in their marriage. And I can tell you that those who do know their roles end up having a fulfilling and God-honoring marriage. We're resuming our series in the book of Ephesians today called Chosen. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and pull out the sermon notes that you received when you arrived this morning. If you forgot to grab a sermon note handout or you need to borrow a Bible, you can get the sermon note handout on the welcome table at the door, or you can grab a Bible at the information table back there by the curtains. Don't worry, it's okay if you want to grab one right now. We will not heckle you. We'd rather you 
get one and be able to follow along with us. As you turn there, uh, I want to just review for context reasons where we left off in July, hard to believe, uh, when we last looked at Ephesians together. Uh, we studied in July, three months ago now, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, and talked about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We learned in Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, that the secret to living the holy lives the Lord expects us to live is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of the confusion that exists around this popular phrase, I gave you a, a definition. And that definition is on your handout. I want to encourage you to write it down. And it's this. To be filled with the Spirit is to continually surrender control of your life to the Spirit so He can make you mature in Christ. That is, that is what it means biblically. That is what the arc of Scripture supports and argues for. To be filled with the Spirit is to be continually surrendered, surrendering your control, the control of your life, excuse me, to the Spirit so He can make you mature in Christ. In other words, being filled with the Spirit is a regular abiding in and yielding to Christ's lordship in your life. It is not, it is not, please say not with me, not, some of you aren't playing along, it's not an event, it's not a euphoria, it's not a mystical feeling, or an experience to pursue as the charismatic movement has tried to convince us. Now, in chapter 5, verse 22, the apostle now transitions into how the gospel should affect our relationships. Paul sets out to answer the question, because Christ died for us and he called us out of the world, how should our relationships be different than the world's? And he begins with the relationship between the husband and wife, and then moves to parents and children at the beginning of chapter 6, and then finishes with the relationship between, between employers and employees after, a little later in chapter 6, excuse me. And so his instruction on marriage begins with the responsibility of the Christian wife, which brings us to our big idea for today, which is the Christian wife is called to follow her husband as he follows Christ. The Christian wife is called to follow her husband as he follows Christ. As you write that down, allow me to quickly explain how being filled with the Spirit is connected to marriage. When the Apostle Paul wrote that we should be filled with the Spirit, he uses what New Testament Greek scholars call the passive mood. Sounds relaxing, doesn't it? What this means is that being filled is something we cannot do to ourselves. This means instead being filled is something we must allow the Spirit to do to us. In other words, practicing the spiritual disciplines and submitting to the Spirit's control is how we get filled. Now, this is important for you to know because every verb 
that the Apostle Paul lists from verse 18 through the end of the chapter is meant to be a byproduct or proof of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And just to be clear, because I don't want you to miss this, ladies, and any lady that wants to be married or hopes to be married someday, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in this passage that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you've been chosen to follow your husband. And proof that you are filled with the Holy Spirit is found in whether you willingly submit to him. Now, if you're sitting here today, ladies, thinking, boy, I wish I would not have come to church today. Boy, I would much more enjoy watching Fox News this morning. Don't worry. Next week, it'll be the husband's turn to be picked on. So bring your man to church next Sunday. That's the theme. It's, it's bring your hubby to church Sunday next week. So we'll, we'll get to him next week. Now, before we unpack Ephesians 5.22 and 23, or excuse me, 5.22 to 33 together, I need to give you some important background regarding God's character and intentions when it comes to marriage. In short, if I were to put it in a super, super short Twitter post, God is a God of order. Therefore, number one on your outline is this. The Lord exercises and delegates authority to prevent chaos. The Lord exercises and delegates authority to prevent chaos. Whether you realize it or not, we too, all of us, find comfort and we like order. Take for example, we like order in our city. It is good that there are traffic lights and traffic laws and street signs in place to protect us from running into each other when we drive to church on Sunday morning. And it's really good that these traffic lights, laws, and signs are followed because God has instituted civil authorities who will dole out painful consequences if they're not. I mean, first of all, can you imagine what your life would be like driving to church on Sunday morning or maybe to work on Monday morning if there were no traffic lights, no traffic laws? What if you just, when you turn 16, you get to have a driver's license? You are able to drive. Do I have to go to driver's education class? Nope, we don't have a driver's education class. It does not exist. Imagine what it would be like even if we had traffic laws and signs in place, but there were no police to enforce them, no tickets, no fines. Do you think anybody would pay attention to them? I'll just answer for you. <laughs> we also like order in our sports. Can you imagine uh, what a basketball or football game would look like without any referees? Or would you buy tickets to an L.A. Dodgers game and drive down to L.A., spending your precious time and money to go down there if there were no rules in the game and no umpires to hold anybody accountable to the rules? Or what if there were no referees or umpires who had the authority to enforce them? Of course not. 
We would not enjoy that. We'd go, this is, this is crazy chaos. It's anarchy. Everybody's doing what they think is right. And so, why does the Lord exercise and delegate authority to prevent chaos? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. And I think it's because as I look at the arc of the scriptures, I think it's because the Lord knows chaos is harmful to his creation. Chaos is harmful to his creation. We see this throughout the entire Bible. For example, uh, the Lord created order out of chaos in the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told the earth was without form or void until the Lord said, let there be light. And then he established order by separating light from darkness and the expanse from the waters. Next, we see that the Lord uses governments to maintain order on earth. He ordains and he empowers governments to maintain order through nations, states, and cities, and provinces. Romans 13 says governments serve God as an avenger who carry out his wrath on wrongdoers. In fact, the book of Judges uh, describes a time in the life of the people of Israel during which they had no king or no leader. And interestingly, we're told in Judges 17 and Judges 21, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And let me just say, that Bible verse in, 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 in Judges 17 and 21 is saying it was bad. It's not good that everybody does what's right in their own eyes. There was chaos amongst God's people. And as the book of Judges shows, there was great moral and spiritual decline. We also see in the scriptures, in particular in the New Testament, the Lord desires order in his church. In the chaotic church of Corinth, for example, you've heard me mention they got more attention from Paul than any other church. Well, you could argue Ephesians got a lot of attention from, from him because he spent three years there. However, Paul wrote as many as four letters to the church of Corinth, two of which made it into the canon of Scripture, and both letters are longer than any other letter written to any other church. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul had to appeal to the congregation in Corinth to stop fighting with each other. Then in chapters 5 and 6, he had to appeal to the leaders to exercise church discipline. They were tolerating sin within the church, and that was creating chaos. And then later in chapter 14, Paul rebukes the congregation again because their worship services were chaos. For example, when they served the Lord's Supper, nobody waited until everybody was served. They, and, and some took more than they should have, so then there were no elements left because they were seeing it literally as a meal, and they were stuffing themselves at the Lord's table. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, rebukes the congregation at Corinth, and he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And all things should be done decently and in order. So, the Lord also desires order in something else he created. And that is the nuclear family. 
In order to prevent chaos in the home, the Lord has delegated authority to husbands. How, you might ask? Well, let's look at the text together. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here's number two on your outline, and that is spirit-filled wives yield to their husbands. Spirit-filled wives yield to their husbands. Now, before we go any further, I want to acknowledge that there's a negative bias that has caused this passage to be misinterpreted and rejected more than ever before. And I'm referring, of course, to our American culture after the women's liberation movement, and the Me Too movement. These movements have not only spread misperceptions about the Christian home, but they've also promoted an unbiblical view of the woman's role in the home. They've promoted and socialized our culture into seeing women in a way God did not design women to function. For this reason, I'd like to ask you to set aside any cultural biases that you've been exposed to, and with the Lord's help, to look objectively today at the scriptures with me so that we can get God's heart on this topic of marriage. I think the Lord has some credibility on this topic. He did create marriage. It was his idea. Now, Next, I need to give you some cultural background so that you understand who Paul was writing to and how significant this passage is for his audience. We need to understand the culture that this New Testament church was being called out of so that we can get God's heart on what's being said here. And here's what I mean. In first century Greco-Roman culture, husbands were viewed as being superior to their wives, and husbands were expected to control and dominate them. Wives were ranked much lower than husbands. In fact, I would say they were slightly ranked above slightly a servant in the house. Wives were seen as inferior and expected to completely obey their husbands. Now, when the Apostle Paul gave instructions on marriage here in Ephesians 5, and he also does the same in Colossians chapter 3, he actually elevated the role of the woman in the home. Now, according to Paul, Holy Spirit speaking through him, inspiring the Word of God to be recorded, Husbands and wives are equal, equal in value, different in roles. 
Husbands, instead of being told they should control and domineer their wives, dominate their wives, excuse me, they're now told by Paul here in Ephesians 5 to love their wives. And wives are instructed to submit willingly. It doesn't mean wives are supposed to absolutely obey everything the husband says, but they are to submit and respect their husband. This is radical, and it's a new paradigm for the the audience that Paul is writing to. And yet, what Paul accomplishes here, inspired by the Spirit, recording God's Word, is he maintains the order in the home that God desires with a hierarchy, but increases the influence and the voice of the wife. Now, I say that because I think the tendency of a lot of women these days, just being very frank with you, and I know I rarely am, is, is, is that I think a lot of women today look at the teaching on marriage in the scriptures through the lens of the liberation movement and the Me Too movement. And they think, oh, how horrible this description is. But I want to challenge you instead to look at it through a different lens and to see how far things have come. To see how far Paul elevated the role of the wife in the home. Now that we've gone over some important background information, let's look at the text together. I want to break down some key phrases. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. Notice it says your own husbands. That means wives are not expected to submit to every man. They are expected to submit to their own husband. The word submit comes from the Greek word hupotasso. I've put this on your sermon note handout and as well up on the screen so that you can understand the definition and jot it down. Hupotasso. It means to subject oneself, to obey or to yield. It's a compound word that combines huper, which means under, and tasso, which means to put in order. It was used to, uh, in, in military uh, context, to describe soldiers getting in line, coming under authority willingly in order to have order in the ranks. Now, this is not, though, describing forced submission like it previously existed in the culture, in the Greco-Roman culture. Instead, what Paul is calling for is a wife's willingness to come under her husband's protection and to do so in obedience to the Lord. Now, after studying the use of this word in the New Testament over the years, here's a definition for submission that I've been working on. I'm going to encourage you to write this down on your handout as well. Submitting is joyfully yielding to and learning from God-ordained authority after respectfully disagreeing. Submitting is joyfully yielding to and learning from God-ordained authority after respectfully disagreeing. So it's important to understand you haven't submitted until you've disagreed. 
And I want you to also notice that this definition is not only helpful in marriage, but it's also helpful between parents and children, employers and employees, government authorities and citizens. Now, why did I include joyful, joyfully yielding? Well, because these two words capture what the rest of the scriptures teach about God's sovereignty over authorities. Even when we don't get our way, we can always trust the Lord will get his way. And we can trust the Lord will make our yielding turn out for good. Another reason why it's important to yield joyfully is because if we yield angrily, it means we've made an idol in our hearts out of our desire, and it means we don't trust the Lord. Now, why did I write learning from? Because this too recognizes God's sovereign hand in choosing the authority he's put over us. And since the Lord is always teaching us something, and he works to accomplish his will through authority, we can trust he will teach us through the authorities he puts in our lives. And why did I write respectfully disagreeing? Well, the Lord does not want us sinning, manipulating, complaining, or insisting in order to get our way, because again, it reflects a distrust of him. This means arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing, hoping to beat down your husband, to wear him out where he finally sees it your way and does what you want, is not submitting. It is not respectfully disagreeing. Respectfully disagreeing means you are free to calmly share your view once or twice or to express your concerns once or twice. But if your husband or supervisor, if we're talking about the work context, does not change his mind after one or two appeals, then you need to yield in order to preserve the relationship, in order to honor the Lord's desire for order, and in order for there to be peace in the home and the workplace. Now, those of you who have driver's license and hopefully went to driver's education class have learned that when we see a yield sign followed by a, by a merge sign, it does not mean all the other cars are better than us. Have you ever thought that? Why do they get to go first? How come I can't go? No, of course not. Those signs were created to protect us from colliding with other cars in order to maintain safety and order on the road. By yielding and merging, our vehicle becomes one with the oncoming traffic. In a similar fashion, the Lord asks that the wife yield and merge when there is disagreement in the home in order to prevent an unnecessary collision. By merging, she follows her husband's lead and becomes one with him, just like you would merging on Interstate 99. 
Collisions in the home create conflict that can do great damage to your marriage. And the Lord doesn't want that. Now, look at the text again with me. You see in verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think Paul has two implications in mind here. First, when a wife submits to her husband, she is submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ through him. And I think Paul also means she is to submit to her husband like she would the Lord. However, it does not mean, it does not mean her husband is of the same rank as the Lord. It does not mean her husband is the Lord. Because he too is under the Lord's authority. Paul then goes on in verse 23 to say, For the husband is the head of the wife. So he gives the reason for the submission. God has placed the husband as head of the home. And because God has placed husbands as head, in fact, the Greek word used there is the word, the word kephale. Kephale means to have authority over. Nearly every time it's used in the scriptures, it refers to someone of rank or authority. On some occasions, kephale refers to the physical head of a person, or an animal. In other words, just as your head leads your body, have you ever heard the phrase, it seemed like people are running around with their heads cut off? Well, that's because we need our head to keep us in line and to give us direction and order. In other occasions that kafali is used in the New Testament, it describes a general leading an army. Not in the New Testament alone, sorry, in the Old Testament and New Testament. So, the husband, as head, is called to lead his family. Like the head on your body, on your shoulders, like a general leads an army. I'll talk more about what this looks like next week. Verse 24 again, if you look there at the text, Paul also says, So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this answers the question, how much do I have to submit? It describes the scope of the submission. And what this looks like may vary from home to home, depending on the temperament of the husband and the giftedness of the husband. Regardless, the apostle is clear. In general, everything the wife does should come under her husband's leadership. Now, I need to give a couple qualifiers here because, again, like so many other passages of Scripture, it's easy for us to get off the center of the road and to fall into ditches here. And ditches are dangerous when we're doing theology and Bible study. Submission is never meant to be a license for abuse. Neither does a husband's wife, excuse me, does, does a husband's behavior or spiritual condition exempt a wife from submitting. So, so, for example, a wife can't say, well, I really don't like that he does that all the time, so I won't submit to him. If he would start picking up after himself a little bit around the house, then I'll submit to him. No, there, there's no out clause given for that. Or if he would buy me this color of car, then I'll submit to him. 
fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Peter says the Lord may, in fact, use a wife's submission to bring her unbelieving husband to faith in Christ. This passage and others like it teach that so long as the husband does not ask his wife to sin or to do something harmful, submission is the Christ-honoring response. You know, I've always been a fan of Steve Farrar's depiction of how a husband and wife should work together. He describes this in his book, Point Man, which is a great book I highly recommend for men to read. It's a great, very practical book on how a man should lead his family. Farrar says a husband and wife should practice the same teamwork that a captain and first officer do in the cockpit of a 747. On board the jumbo airliner, with you are all the people and stuff that make up your life. Your grandparents and parents and kids and pets and in-laws are just outside the cockpit doors in first class. And then down the spiral staircase and coach is your bosses and your kids' two schools and their teachers, a soccer coach, a baseball coach, a pediatrician, a chiropractor, a general practitioner, and a gynecologist. Also on the plane is your insurance agent. The two vehicles you drive are in the cargo hold of the plane. And, he says, a partridge in a pear tree is there too. He was joking about that part. Farrar says married life is like flying a 747 because just as a couple is to uh, keep the plane in the air and land it safely, so do the captain and first officer of a plane. That's, that's the goal, is to keep your marriage and family running and working and to not crash. Another reason he depicts it is this way, is at any given moment, an alarm can go off in the cockpit telling you that one of your children needs $5,000 worth of braces that were not in your budget. And then while you're trying to solve that problem, Another alarm bell goes off announcing that your in-laws no longer want to host Thanksgiving this year. And then another alarm goes off alerting you that one of the vehicles you drive that's in the cargo hold needs a new transmission, and it's out of warranty. You get the picture. Farrar's point is that married life can be so chaotic that no spouse can handle it alone and no captain worth his weight in salt would try to keep the plane in the air without input or assistance from his first officer. And just like two pilots in a cockpit, husbands and wives need to practice mutual understanding and accountability and teamwork to keep the plane in the air. And if a difficult decision needs to be made and you can't both reach an agreement after some discussion, the Lord has given the husband operational authority so that your plane doesn't crash and a decision can be made. Your husband gets the last word because the Lord will be holding him accountable for the safety of your family. So... Spirit-filled wives submit to their husbands. Let's look at verse 33. Um, the verses in between 24 and 33 uh, are 
describe the role of the husband, which I'll get to next week. And by the way, there's more verses for the husbands, ladies, if that encourages you. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's number three in your outline. Spirit-filled wives respect their husbands. Some translations, depending on which one you have of the scriptures, might say must fear or must honor. The word the, the apostle uses is the, is the Greek word phobeo. It, in some places, the New Testament is used to convey fear or being afraid, but here in verse 33, it's meant to convey a reverential fear, obedience, or deference, similar to the fear of the Lord. It's not being afraid of God. It's sort of being in awe of Him or reverential towards Him. We see a great example of what this looks like whenever the President of the United States boards or disembarks from Marine One. The Marine at the bottom of the stairs has to daily set aside his personal feelings towards the President and instead focus on respecting the office of the President. And so that Marine always salutes his commander-in-chief. Now, I am not saying, ladies, that you have to salute your husband when he goes off to work and comes home. The point is, the Lord wants you to respect the office of husband, even when you may not respect the person your husband is. This means a godly wife will... Respect her husband by speaking to him respectfully, even when she disagrees. It means that she won't undermine him in front of the children or behind his back. Because that would be sowing division in the home, which is something the Lord hates. Instead, she teaches her children to honor her husband. Not embarrassing him, not putting him down in public. She doesn't call and complain about her husband to her girlfriends. Oh, you won't believe what he did this time. Oh, really? Mine did the same thing. The Lord hears that. Your husband may not, but the Lord hears. It means, uh, respecting your husband means praying for his walk with the Lord because the physical needs and the spiritual health of your family rest on his shoulders. And that's a significant responsibility. He will answer to God for the spiritual health of your family. It means deferring to him on major family decisions. You can give him counsel and input, but you don't make significantly large family decisions without him. And respecting your husband means, if necessary, correcting him privately, but respectfully. Now, I want to give you some hope here and some encouragement, ladies. When you submit to and respect your husband, you can expect the following to happen. First of all, the Lord will be able to bless your obedience to his word. The Lord promises that. Luke 11, verse 28, if you want to jot that reference down to encourage you. Your husband will be less stressed than he already is about providing for your family and leading your family. And I can tell you, if you asked him how he feels about it, most likely he's going to say, yeah, it is a burden. Yeah, I do get stressed. I doubt your husband's going to go, no big deal. Man, I'm chilling. 
This is the easiest thing I've ever done. No, 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 no. If you respect and submit to your husband, you can expect, I think, your husband to bless and to praise you publicly. That's what the husband in Proverbs 31 did for his Proverbs 31 wife. You can expect your children and grandchildren to be blessed by your example so that they too will want to have a marriage that looks like yours someday. The world will see that the Lord created marriage and that his way of doing marriage is so much better than theirs. And all the modifications that the world is trying to do to marriage to do it their way. And the world will see the beautiful picture of Christ's relationship with his church displayed in high definition. You see, the Lord wants you. He wants you to be a joyful and fulfilled wife. But that can only happen if you're willing to do marriage his way. And I understand it sounds counterintuitive, but you have to do marriage the way he created it to work. You see, the Lord created wives to be a completer for their husbands, not a competer. And he created marriage to be a power union, not a power struggle. And so, let's talk about applications. What can we do now that we've read this? We don't want to be like the person described in James 1 who looks at the scripture and then goes, oh, that's nice, and then walks away. You know, James says that would be as silly as looking in the mirror but not changing your appearance when it needs changing. And so we're called to be, according to James, doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. So here's uh, the first application. I have two for the wives and one for the husbands. And I'll try my best to remember to be fair next week and come up with five for the husbands and only one for the wives. Fair, right? Wives, if necessary, repent and apologize for unsubmissiveness. Ladies, I have to ask the question because I think the text begs the question, do you need to apologize to your husband, your children, or both for not respecting him? And I'm asking because unsubmissiveness and disrespecting your husband is a, as offensive to the Lord as any other sin is. And just because the culture says it's okay to treat your husband like a sitcom buffoon dad doesn't mean it's okay with the Lord. And if you're not sure whether you need to apologize or not, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to search your heart and to maybe refresh you on some history, or even better, if you're feeling really bold and you have a lot of faith, ask your husband if you need to apologize for anything. Next, uh, 1B, application 1B for wives, clothe yourself with humility. As I was preparing this, this message and studying this text, I kept asking myself and asking the Lord, how can ladies do this? I know this is hard. How can they do it? What, is there anything I can tell them that would make it easier for them? And I think one of the biggest ways that the Lord showed me that you can make it easier on yourself to submit to your husband is to walk with the Lord and clothe yourself with humility. 
Humility is the sober awareness of our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. It's understanding just how wretched and wicked we are, that we have faults and weaknesses and sin patterns we struggle with. And remembering that when we look at our spouse. When we do so, it prevents a lot of sins that lead to unsubmissiveness. Such as, see, humble people don't have a critical spirit. They don't see themselves as better than their husbands. They, they are not unteachable. They are, they are not sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. They're not defensive when they're corrected. They don't blame shift when they're caught making a mistake or doing something wrong. Humble people are able to admit when they're wrong, and they don't fight to the death to be right. So wives, clothe yourself with humility, and submission will be easier. Number two, second application for husbands, live a life that's submissive to the Lord. Men, if you will make Jesus Christ your first love, if you will walk in his ways and surrender to his lordship, you will make it exponentially easier for your wife to submit to you. Over the years, I've had countless women tell me how badly they wish their husband would lead them spiritually. However, did you know not one woman has ever come to me in over 20 years of ministry and asked me to pray for their husband to stop loving Jesus too much. Not one woman has ever come to me and said, you know, pastor, could you please talk to my husband? He's, he's reading the Bible all the time. He's insisting we get to church on time. He doesn't like it when we miss a Sunday. He's quoting scripture and reminding me and the kids of honoring the Lord during the week and that we need to pursue holiness. I mean, it's just getting a little too much. No wife has ever, ever said that to me. And so husbands, live a life that's submissive to the Lord and you'll make it easier for your wife to submit to you. Uh, before I... Uh, bring things to a close. I wanted to mention a resource that's very helpful. I meant to put this on your handout, and I think I forgot to do it. Uh, ladies, a great, 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 great book uh, is The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. She's a biblical counselor, and she wrote an exhaustive book on how to be the best wife you can be and have a great marriage. So I highly recommend that book, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. You can find it online at your favorite bookseller. Well, there was a woman once walking along the beach when she suddenly stumbled upon a genie's lamp. She picked it up, rubbed it, and the genie popped out. And the amazed woman asked the genie if she got three wishes as tradition taught. The genie said, no, 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 lady. You see, due to inflation and constant downsizing and fierce global competition, I can only grant you one wish. So what's it going to be, lady? I think she was walking on a New Jersey beach, by the way. The woman didn't hesitate. She said, I want peace in the Middle East. You know, these, these kind of, here's a map. 
You know these countries right here? They've been fighting for centuries. I wanted to stop fighting each other. So the genie looked at the map and he exclaimed, Lady, just as you said, these countries have been at war for centuries. I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Make another wish. Give me something else. So the woman thought for a moment. Hmm. Well, I've never been able to find the right man. You know, one that's considerate and fun and likes to cook and help with the house cleaning and one that's romantic and gets along with my family, doesn't watch sports all the time, and he's faithful. That's what I wish for, the perfect husband. The genie heard that, and he let out a long sigh, <sighs> shook his head, and he said to the woman, let me see that map again. I share that joke slash story because, ladies, I hope you realize the Lord has not given you a perfect husband. And he never will because no such man exists. You married a sinner, and so did he. So don't require the sinner you married to be perfect before you submit to him. Did you know there were people who wouldn't submit to Jesus when he was here on earth doing his earthly ministry? And he was perfect. So, your husband's not waiting for you to be perfect before he loves you. Don't wait for him to be perfect before you submit to him. The Christian wife is called to follow her husband as he follows Christ. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.